Bienvenidos to Obscuro, a podcast focused on conflict in Latin America, the areas most people forget. Today's guest is Welt im Conflict, researching the Apure conflict on the Colombian and Venezuelan border. So um, we're starting out with the FARC in general. Some of you might not know what exactly the FARC is. Um, FARC, for the first part, is short for um, Revolutionary Armed Force of Colombia. And they were founded in uh, 1964. And uh, they're Marxist-Leninist guerrilla uh, group. Uh, yeah, they were in an over 50-year conflict with the government in a civil war. Um, they got demobilized in 2017 after a peace agreement in 2016. But of course, not every one of them got demobilized and some of them are now active as dissidents and still doing the same thing. The means of financing were um, quite diverse. They were, um, ex of course, doing extortion, um, drug trafficking, but they also were active in the illegal mining industry, which is quite big in South America. The other major um, guerrilla army which is currently active in Colombia is the ELN, which is short for National Liberation Army. And they were also founded in 1964. And they are also a Marxist-Leninist guerrilla group. But they're also heavily influenced by um, liberation theology. It's kind of a religious um, a Marxism form. Um, and one of them, the um, main characters of the early ELN was uh, Camilo Torres. He was a priest and he recruited a lot of um, fighters for the ELN. And nowadays he's an icon. He was very good at talking and recruiting, but uh, he wasn't very good at fighting. <laughs> Died in his first conflict with the um, Colombian military. And the ELN as well had a peace process, but they had peace talks, for example, not a peace process. Um, the peace talks were ended in 2019 after a car bombing on a police academy, which killed uh, 21 people. There's also a popular front episode about it, if you want to hear more about it. I'm not going to go into detail, but uh, yeah, if you want more on that, uh, listen to the episode. It's very interesting. So um, how did the FARC develop after the peace process? So, as I said before, there are still dissident groups active. Not everyone agreed to the peace process, and some stayed out there in the jungle fighting and doing the usual activities that they were doing before. But uh, they were definitely lacking uh, a centralized structure. They were lacking communications between each other. They were starting to fight each other. They were losing, of course, territory because some of their commanders um, were also demobilized and not everyone stayed active and they lost a lot of territory. They lost uh, kind of a, a national structure and they lost a lot of um, direction on what they're doing, the activities. And there were two people who tried to change that. And the first one is uh, Genti Duarte. He was active in the park, of course, before the peace process as well. He started out in the 14th front of the park and quickly moved on to the seventh front in the uh, Meta region. And he became an active, uh, not, not an active, very important um, part of the Eastern Bloc of the FARC. Because in his region that he controlled as a commander, uh, there were a lot of uh, coca plantations and 
the Eastern Bloc was quite active in drug trafficking, so he was very important for um, the Eastern Bloc and um, the financing part of uh, the guerrilla. He was also um, friends with some of the very famous and legendary FARC leaders, and it gave, gave him quite a high standing within the organization. He also represented the FARC in the peace negotiations in Cuba. And so he was in favor of the peace process when he came back to Colombia. But uh, shortly before the signing, he broke with the peace process and went back into the jungle and joined up with um, the leader of the First Front, uh, Ivan Mordisco. And yeah, he um, tried to unite the very uh, the different dissident structures of the park that were still active, and he tried to um, create a bigger structure to be uh, more effective to unite uh, actions against the government. And also, um, like uh, you're always more efficient when you do uh, when you have a bigger group. So he tried to do that. Um, you're also more efficient with drug trafficking and stuff like that if you're um, not just operating in very regional on a very regional level. So yeah, he tried to do that. And the second one is Ivan Marquez. He also was a former commander. He was the commander of the Southwest Bloc. And he was actually leading the peace negotiations in uh, Cuba. And he also mobilized at first. So he was an active part of the FARC part. But in 2019, he broke ties with the peace process and went back into activity. And he said uh, he went back to fighting against the government because um, the government failed to deliver on its promises. But he might have also went back into uh, fighting because one of his allies, Jesus Santric, uh, he was uh, arrested for drug trafficking. He was later released. but. Um, he might have been scared to also face um, justice for uh, his activities in drug trafficking as well. So he, of course, says it's uh, ideological reasons because the government didn't deliver on their uh, on what they said they would do in the peace process. But you uh, you never know really exactly what the reasons are. He was joined by quite some high-ranking uh, commanders, joined by again Jesus Santric. Um, by El Paisa and alias uh, Romania. They were all very high-ranking um, commanders in the FARC before the peace process. And they called the, the new group of FARC dissidents uh, Segunda Marte Calia. Uh, Segunda Marte Calia. And um, the groups are quite different from one another. So the Gentil Duarte fraction um, has a very bottom-up approach because they don't really have the high leadership from the former FARC. They have a lot of, um, the individual fronts have a lot of freedom to decide what they're doing. And the commanders of the individual fronts um, have a lot of um, say about what happens in the organization. While on the other hand, in the uh, Segunda Marquetalia, it's very, uh, top-down approach. So they have the high-ranking commanders that have a lot of influence among politicians as well, In um, especially in Venezuela, they have a lot of connections. So it's very top-down. And yeah, so the Secunda Marquetalia, they also um, started to appear in 
in Venezuela, as I said, they have very good ties to the government because of their former activities in the FARC. The FARC historically, of course, is connected to the uh, Venezuelan government. And yeah, that's why they started out um, with their main base there. And yes, so now I'm going to talk about a little bit what uh, how's the situation in uh, 2021, because uh, that's when we see um, some of the fighting start. So yeah, as I said, the, you have to know the Apur region in, in Venezuela, it's, it's a border region with the Arauca, uh, with the Arauca state in Colombia. And it's been historically controlled by guerrilla groups. So the ELN is active there. Um, the FARC used to be active there. And now there's also the Secunda Magalia. Uh, the FARC is still active there as the 10th front of the FARC, which after the peace process, the dissidents of the 10th front joined the Gentil Duarte structure. So you have the Gentil Duarte structure in the region. They have their foot in there, um, the ES there as well. And uh, the Secunda Magalia now start uh, to build up presence there as well. You also have some smaller other militias um, from Venezuela, but in this conflict, they play a minor role. So I'm just gonna leave them out using. As I said, the Secunda Martigalia, they are um, very much connected to the Venezuelan state. And why exactly the fighting started, no one really knows. Maybe the Secunda Martigalia wanted to gain some more territory for drug trafficking and control of drug trafficking routes. But uh, the Venezuelan military started um, attacks against the 10th Front in January 2021. And at first, there were very small attacks. And it escalated into a full-scale war in March 2021. The Venezuelan military, they're really like they're an authoritarian regime. so. They really tried to get a lot of propaganda out of it. They um, did a lot of videos. I don't know, you can look them up on YouTube or something or Twitter maybe with artillery shooting, with uh, they're showing off their Russian uh, military equipment and Chinese military equipment, um, artillery shooting in the distance. It's uh, parachute troops jumping out of an airplane and stuff like that. It's quite ridiculous. It's obviously just um, propaganda and doesn't really reflect what's going on the ground because on the ground they quite miserably failed against the um, 10th front which is um they, they they really failed to push them out of their positions and out of the key regions um of course the 10th front they weren't operating as obviously anymore like out in the open but um they didn't really manage to um get them out of the region of the apple region um, since the, they use guerrilla tactics, they can move seamlessly between uh, Colombia and Venezuela. They control parts of the border region. So it was really hard for the uh, Venezuelan military to get, uh, to get them out of there. And um, they really failed. And there was a lot of frustration because in the Apur region, the 10th front, or in at least in parts of the upper region, the 10th front was for decades the de facto government because the Venezuelan state was very like absent in the region. They didn't have a lot of presence there. That's why um, the guerrillas made the rules in the area that the 
ELN controls, the ELN makes the rules, and in the area that the 10th front controls, they make the rules. So um, they're obviously very connected to the civilians there, living there. And that's why when the army went into um, towns there, it's, it's got really brutal because uh, Human Rights Watch, they did a report on this. They reported extrajudicial uh, executions of uh, civilians. They were being accused of um, um, providing information to the guerrillas. And yeah, it was quite uh, brutal stuff happening to the civilian population. A lot of people had to flee. Yeah, some of them flew into, they were fleeing into um, Colombia. Some of them got taken prisoners, like without any accusations, just being taken away. It's, of course, a very authoritarian government. They're just doing that and nobody holds them accountable. So, yeah, quite bad stuff happening there. Very, um, very sad to see that, of course. Um, civilian population is always the one losing in such a war situation. So as a sign of where you also can see them failing is in May, at the beginning of May, the 10th Front took uh, eight soldiers uh, hostage of the Venezuela military, and that was quite embarrassing for them. So um, they never publicly uh, said that it's true that soldiers of them got taken hostage, but uh, the uh, 10th Front published a video with them, and that's when also the first conflict kind of gets to an end, because um, at the end of May, um, the soldiers are released and the army pulls out of Apur, so there must have been some kind of agreement between the 10th Front and the uh, military. So, yeah, I guess they uh, had an agreement uh, to let the soldiers go, and uh, therefore the Venezuelan military pulled out of the region. Another important thing that happened in the May of uh, 2021 is uh, the death of uh, Jesus Sandrich. How exactly he died is not uh, clear, but it's often not very clear in like kind of these guerrilla armies. The different groups always accuse each other of killing them, but his death was confirmed. It was probably the 10th front because uh, it wouldn't make any sense that the Venezuelan government would kill them since they were allied. Um, again, Jesus Santrique is one of the leaders of the Segunda Marcalia, along with Juan Marcos. So yeah, they were one of the main commanders, and of course, a lot of propaganda was going on afterwards. The tenth front, the tenth front, of course, accused the Segunda Marcalia um, to be responsible for the offensive against them, and, and working together with the, the Venezuelan army. And I mean, yeah, I guess that's pretty much true, I guess. You can definitely say that they were allied because you can really see uh, when the Venezuelan government went in, they never attacked the structures of the Segunda Marticalia and also didn't attack the ELN. They only went for the 10th front. And that's quite obvious. I'm gonna take a sip of water. So we have a, a small piece, uh, small time frame of peace, I guess. Not really, of course, some stuff still happening. But there's no major fighting going on until the end of 2021. And that's when you can say like the second uh, phase of this conflict is starting and other fractions are going to get involved here as well. So um, at the beginning of 2021, um, two other leaders of the Segunda Marte Calia die. Uh, first of them is El Paisa. He dies in an ambush and alias Omania dies as well. 
uh, how exactly they die is, is also not clear. Um, one newspaper reported that El Paisa died in an ambush by the uh, 10th Front, and how Romania died, there are different reports. Some claim uh, drug traffickers killed him, and other reports also say um, the 10th Front killed him. It's uh, uh, not very much very clear. So yeah, it's always difficult to say in these uh, guerrilla situations um, who and who. Uh, you have this again right now. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Gentil Duarte died. I, this, this is a bit foreshadowing now. But again, uh, each fraction is accusing the other one of killing. And uh, for us, it's really hard to say who did it exactly. We don't know, essentially. But what we know is that both of them died. Um, since the Segunda Matacalia is taking a top-down approach, it's like crippling for them that uh, th three of their um, four top leaders have died within yeah, half a year, like six months. And uh, almost half, uh, almost the whole um, leader structure has been killed. Um, only Ivan Marcus um, is still alive, so it was pretty crippling to them and a heavy blow. They basically pushed out the Venezuelan army out of the Apur region. They were um, doing very well against the Segunda Matagalia, uh, killed or. Three of their commanders again are now dead. And so the ELN got involved because um, one of their high ranking uh, officers gets killed, probably by the 10th front. We see from the aftermath, it's probably them. Um, alias uh, Mazamoro, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, gets killed. And he's a high ranking commander in the Domingo Line front. That is all active in the Aro region, in this border region that the 10th Front is also active in. So um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Domingo Lane Front. It's probably the most um, dangerous, I would say, or the most, the biggest uh, um, fraction or front of the ELN. So that kicks off a whole war between uh, the 10th Front and the ELN in both uh, Colombia and Venezuela. Um, the the days after the murder of Masamoro are very bloody. There are a lot of massacres. 26 people die within a couple of days. And in the first month of 2022, um, 68 people are dead just because of this conflict in the Araka region again and uh, the Apo region of Venezuela. So we have now the ELN entered the conflict. They are allying with the uh, Segunda Matacalia against um, the 10th Front against the 10th Front and the Gente Duarte structure. They are also now allying with the Venezuelan state. The Venezuelan state has been active again. They kind of see it as an, another chance to uh, push out the 10th Front and maybe get some revenge from the uh, embarrassing First War. Um, they again started a huge propaganda campaign um, under the slogan, Apur is Nestro. You can, so in English that's uh, Apur is ours. Um, you can tap that into YouTube and you find ridiculous propaganda videos of Venezuelan soldiers jumping out of airplanes, them firing artillery and stuff like that. It's very ridiculous, obviously, propaganda. It's um, quite funny how anyone could look at this and say, oh, they're actually fighting. Um, they've definitely changed their approach in the 10th front door. 
um, since now they're not really involved in, in that much combat. They're really working together with the ELN. So they've put a lot of weight behind the ELN. And I think um, the ELN is doing most of the thing. Of course, you can not say that for sure, but um, they have definitely a lot of ties now. Um, there have been reports of combined controls, uh, patrols, not controls, patrols between the Venezuelan army and the ELN. So they're patrolling the region together. The um, Venezuelan army has uh, quite a few outposts in ELN-controlled region in the Apur um, state. And to what level exactly they are working together is not very clear. Um, they're definitely sharing information. If they are also delivering weapons to the ELN, that's another question. I've seen a report or an article a couple of days ago um, claiming that the Venezuelan government is sending a lot of small arms to very small outposts in uh, the ELN-controlled region. So I guess you could say uh, it's very um, likely that they uh, also uh, share small arms with the ELN. So we're talking about um, um, assault rifles, uh, machine guns, and grenade launchers and stuff like this. So no like heavy equipment or stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's kind of um, you can say all oh, the fighting is going. Uh, the tenth round is definitely losing ground. They've also lost uh, their leader, alias Arturo. Um, he was killed by a Colombian military airstrike inside of Colombia. Um, there was also a heavy blow to them, and they're now starting to lose control a bit in um, in Apur, definitely. In Iraq, it's a different situation, but they're definitely um, on the back foot, I would say, in in uh, Venezuela as well. So, yeah. And now we have a recent development. Um, as I said, the 10th Front is that we've been talking about now basically the whole time. They are part of the Gentil Duarte structure. And uh, as of recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Gentil Duarte um, was killed in Zulita, I think. Uh, Zulia is, called, is how you pronounce it, I guess. It's also a state in Venezuela, a border region. It's a little bit to the north of Apur. So um, how exactly he died, we can't tell right now. Um, the Colombian government says he was killed by a, a rivaling fraction of guerrillas, so probably they mean the ELN. The ELN themselves, they have denied that. They said the uh, Colombian government killed him, and the um, Gente Duarte structure themselves, they also said he was killed by the government. So um, by, by the government meaning um, the Colombian government. But he was killed inside Venezuelan territory. So there's no way the Colombian government is going to um, come out and uh, say, yes, we killed him. Um, because that would obviously mean that they um, violated the border. How likely is it that uh, he actually was killed by the Colombian government? I don't know. I have no idea if the Colombian government has um, groups infiltrating into Venezuela to kill um, guerrillas. I would highly doubt that, to be honest. Um, but DLN coming out so aggressively, claiming that they haven't killed him, is also. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know what to make up of this. I don't want to say anything about it because I, I seriously don't know who killed him, and I don't want to speculate on it. So it just um, again, the ELN claimed they didn't kill him. The 
Um, Venezuelan military said pretty much nothing to it. They didn't put out a statement, but um, yeah, I, I don't think they killed him as well um, because they discovered the camp days later. And I think if they had killed him, they would have made a, made a very, um, they would have used it for propaganda purposes. So yeah, I don't, I don't think they killed him either. So I don't want to speculate too much on it. We don't know. Uh, it's very hard to say in these situations with these guerrilla armies who killed who. So, yeah, um, that's pretty much it, I guess. Um, how's the offensive looking currently? It's again uh, very daring for the civilian population there. They are suffering the most. Um, they are losing um, everything when the ELN goes and captures um, a part of uh, former 10th Front property. They pretty much treat the civilians like uh, like shit, of course, uh, like you would expect. Uh, they steal their property. Um, they seize their farms. They um, sometimes uh, force them to work for them on, on coca plantations or stuff like that. Um, there's also reports of, uh, of course, murders, um, very brutal um, civilian population, probably almost suffering the most in these situations. Uh, cattle has been seized, of, of course, as well. Like they're getting their livestock taken away. The farmers um, have to leave. And yeah, it's a very, very bad situation. And of course, the ELN is gaining territory from this. They um, are also gaining um, allies, I guess, with the Venezuelan military. They have a very big ally now. And it's going to see how they use this. They have also started to take territory from the FBL which uh, um, Venezuelan paramilitary structure is usually a pro-government military structure, but in that kind of a falling out. And the ELN has been in conflict with them for quite a while. And now they're using the situation um, that they have the full backing of the government to take um, territory from them as well. So they have started taking them uh, and taking territory from them. And yeah, the FBL, they have quite a couple of numbers. They also have um, a civilian base, but um, they can't really put up anything, a, a real fight against uh, the ELN. They're just too strong, especially in this region. So yeah, um, is there anything else? I guess not really. The drug trafficking is always going on. The cocaine always flows, I guess, it's the same. Um, it doesn't really have an impact. Uh, just because there's fighting going on, the cocaine is always um, going through. But there was a one interesting note. There was a, a semi-sub was uh, found in a river recently in the border region of, um, of Venezuela and Colombia. And um, I read an article that suspected um, they were using a semi-sub in this region, which is quite unusual. Usually they just traffic the cocaine over the border. But because of the heavy fighting, they allegedly started using a semi-sub in the river to um, transport the cocaine from Colombia to Venezuela, from where they then traffic it out to um, wherever, I guess, the US or Europe, probably. So yeah, that's about it, I guess. That's uh, the wars currently go. Um, I don't see anything, how it's going to get better, to be honest. It's quite uh, depressive. Um, the LN will probably go forward with their um, expansion, 
And we will have to see if the Segunda Maltecalia, um, if they recur from the heavy blows, and how they're going to react, as well as how the ten, uh, how the Gentiluata structures. For them, I guess it's a lot more easy to, um, after Gentiluata died, to, I guess, recover, um, because they have more a, a bottom-up approach, and they weren't so much relying on their leadership, but um, we'll have to see if they, if 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 it's a, a big consequence. So yeah, I guess that's about it. Um, the final words, I guess. Uh, if you want to follow the stuff I do, you can check me out on Twitter. Uh, it's at Welt im Konflikt. Um, it's German for World in Conflict. So you can find me also on the, the Popular Front uh, Discord. Yeah. Thanks for having me, I guess. <laughs>